All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the second letter to the Corinthians. In this session, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, down through chapter 7, verse 4. And this particular section is really a direct appeal to the Corinthians to restore their relationship with the Apostle Paul. And so just to put that in context, Paul has argued very extensively over the last handful of chapters, really laying out the nature of his ministry, why his ministry looks the way it does, and how that fits into the gospel message, that he's actually embodying the, the very gospel he preaches. And that's the reason his ministry does. And here at the beginning of chapter 6, the paragraph right before the one we're looking at in this section, Paul has once again explained how he's conducted his ministry with integrity, how that has shown up in laying down his life for the message and the ministry that's been entrusted to him, and how that really uh, requires the Corinthians to to respond positively to him because he's preaching the gospel, he's embodying the gospel, he's done so with integrity, and so... Uh, he tells the Corinthians at the beginning of chapter 6 that we, he says, we urge you, we exhort you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Um, that, that now is the day of salvation and you need to respond positively to that. And so over the last handful of chapters, Paul has explained the nature of his ministry and shown how it has been conducted with Christ-like integrity. And so here... In chapter 6, verse 11, down through 7, 4, Paul is going to directly appeal to the Corinthians to open their heart fully to him and his team, to totally reunite with them. And so chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, direct appeal to open their heart to him and his team. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, comes back to that with another direct appeal to open their heart. But in the middle of those two appeals is a call to really eliminate or get rid of relationships that would lead them away from faithful devotion to Jesus. Specifically, don't enter into relationships with unbelievers and their idolatry. And what Paul shows in that middle section is how they must see themselves in Christ as a completely different community of people. They are the temple of the living God. And so part of opening their heart to Paul will also entail getting rid of relationships that hinder their spiritual life, their devotion and faithfulness to Jesus. And so all of this is part of Paul's kind of climactic appeal to the Corinthians as he seeks to rebuild his relationship with them. And so now he turns to direct appeal, inviting them to open their hearts to them. And so he says in verse 11, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. And so he's expressing himself. He's like, I've, I've been completely frank with you. I've been completely honest with you. Not only when I was there with you, but here in this letter, I've just been honest about my ministry, how I understand it, why it looks the way it does. I've been completely open with you because our heart is open wide to you. And in the ancient world, the heart had more to do with 
their will than their emotions. It was more like the center of his being, the control center of his being. And he's saying, my whole inner person, that which actually drives me and moves me and controls the way I do life, it's open to you. It's wide open to you. And then in verse 12, he says, you are not restrained by us. In other words, we're not keeping you from us. We're not stiff arming you. We're not closing you off. We're not cutting you off, right? Our relationship isn't currently being hindered on our end because our heart is open wide. But second half of verse 12, you are restrained in your own affections. And so if there's any strain in our relationships, it's from your side, not from our sides. You're holding back your affections towards us. And the word translated affections there is splankna, which literally refers to your bowels or your guts, which was viewed as the seat of the emotion in the ancient world, where we view the heart as the seat of the emotion. They viewed the guts, the bowels, the splankna. And that's what he means by affections. It's your your affections, your deep emotions, you're, you're not opening up your guts to us. You're not giving your, your emotions to us. And so he says in verse 13, so now in the same way in exchange, I'm speaking as to my children, that is he's appealing to them like a father to his children. That's the idea. He's not saying I'm speaking as to like little kids who are immature. That's not the point. The point is I have an open heart to you. I'm speaking to you like you're my children. I want you to open your heart to us. And so he says that to them. I'm speaking to you like to children. Open wide your heart to us as well. And so that's the appeal. Um, our heart is open to you. You're not restrained by us. Somehow, For some reason, you're kind of keeping your affections on your end towards us. And so I'm, I'm inviting you Open up your whole being to us as well. Open yourself up. That's the idea. Now, that's the first direct appeal. And he's going to have another direct appeal, as I noted at the outset, in uh, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. But now we get that middle section where it feels very abrupt and a hard shift. And what Paul does is, after inviting them to open their heart to, to uh, Paul and his team, he now then talks about don't be yoked together with unbelievers, that part of opening their hearts to Paul is going to require repentance on them to really not be in partnership with and union with unbelievers. And so that's where he goes here, beginning in verse 14. And so he says, do not be mismatched with unbelievers. And that word translated mismatched traditionally was translated yoked together or unequally yoked. Sometimes it was used traditionally to refer to marriage with unbelievers, right? Uh, don't get married to an unbeliever. Oftentimes that was the way it was expressed. Well, that may be one implication of it, but it's broader than that. The idea here as we read this whole next little section is about uh, being joined together in any significant sort of way with unbelievers. It's actually a compound word, heteros, other, and zugeo, which is the idea of yoking. Like, don't be yoked with others, other yoked. Uh, uh, as one commentator kind of paraphrases it, don't put yourself into a double yoke with somebody who's an unbeliever because they're pulling in a different direction and they're, uh, they're pulling in and have different values and all of that. So don't do that. Don't be mismatched with unbelievers. And then Paul actually gives a series of uh, kind of rhetorical questions and contrasts that shows how fundamentally different believers and unbelievers are. So he says, for, explaining there in the middle of verse 14, for what do righteousness 
and lawlessness share together. They're completely opposite. Righteousness and lawless, they share nothing together. Or what does light have in common with darkness? They're two totally different things. Light has nothing in common with darkness. Or what harmony does Christ have with Belial? Belial was a, a nickname, another Jewish sort of name for Satan. Like what harmony, what agreement is there between the Messiah, King Jesus, and Satan himself? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? All of this, these rhetorical questions, these pairs of opposites, is to strengthen the appeal to not be yoked together or mismatched with unbelievers. Fundamentally, two different kinds of human beings, different communities. And that's the appeal here, is they need to see themselves as a completely different community of people as part of their reconciliation with Paul is going to really require also some deep-seated repentance in their loyalty to Jesus himself. Then Paul, in verse 16, asks one last rhetorical question that again has to do with this fundamental identity. And so he says in verse 16, or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? So you have the idol temples, the temple of Jupiter, the temple of Asclepius, the temple of whatever it is there in Corinth. There's temples all over the place. And then you have the temple of the living God. What agreement, what harmony, what partnership is there between those two temples? They're two totally different things. Now, where Paul's going to go is to show that we God's people in Christ, we're actually the temple of the living God. And the emphasis here in this section when he says the temple of God is the people of God, the corporate identity. And so Paul goes on to explain, for we, the second half of verse 16, for we are, that is we, Paul and the Corinthians, we Christians are the temple of the living God. What the temple itself in Jerusalem was under the old covenant, we, God's people in Messiah, we are now. We're, we're the very temple, the living temple of the living God. And this has to be a key part of their self-understanding as well as our self-understanding as the people of God. In fact, Paul appealed to this same idea in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. And so his previous letter to them that we have in our New Testament Paul uses the same appeal to get them to think about how they're behaving and how they need to act. And so this is a key part of our self-understanding as the people of God that needs to shape how we view ourselves, how we view uh, our relationships with others, how we view our standing in the world. We're the temple of the living God, the very dwelling place of God by his spirit. And then Paul goes on to explain that itself, and he does so with sort of a series of Old Testament passages or allusions to Old Testament passages. He paraphrases some, but he puts it together to help us see what he means when he says, we're the temple of the living God. And so he goes on and he says, just as God said, and that leads into these quotes or allusions from the Old Testament passages, just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And this language could derive from several places, actually, in the Old Testament where God said that sort of thing. There's a passage in Leviticus, Leviticus 26, where Paul said, or where God says something similar to that. There's another passage in Ezekiel 37, and that's probably the one that's more at the forefront of Paul's mind because uh, Ezekiel 37, 27 contains this, this kind of language and it's in a context where it talks about God placing his sanctuary among his renewed people. And that's the same point Paul is making here, that God now has done that. What uh, Ezekiel foresaw and what God promised through Ezekiel has now happened. God has brought his sanctuary, his very dwelling place among his renewed people. And that renewed people includes those people there in Corinth. They are part of that dwelling place of God and God dwells among them and he walks among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so there's this intimacy and this union. They now are the living uh, people of God, the dwelling place. They're his temple. Well, that identity brings with it a need for holiness and purity. And so verse 17, Paul draws that out. He says, therefore, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. That appears to be an allusion to Isaiah 52.11. Paul's kind of freed it up to make it fit the flow of his, his sentences here, but that's the point. Uh, Isaiah 52.11 is in a context where it's describing the salvation that God works through his servant, the Messiah, who lays down his life for his people and thus redeems his people. And, and in that context, God has this appeal uh, for them to come out and be separate and be clean. And that's what, uh, that's what the appeal from God is. Since I'm going to dwell among you, since I'm your, you're the temple and I am now with you, you need to come out and be separate from them. You need to find your identity in me. And then Paul describes at the end of verse 17 and on into verse 18, he, he actually pictures then God's response to his people. He will be their people. He will dwell among them. They need to separate themselves from the pagan nations around them and the Gentiles around them. And then here's God's response. And I will welcome you. I will, uh, welcome means accept. I will bring you to myself and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so God's response is this beautiful, welcoming response. I will welcome you. I will accept you. And not only that, it's not just like you're going to be part of my, my temple and I'm going to welp, welcome you, you know, kind of begrudgingly. No, I'm going to be a father to you and you're going to be sons and daughters to me in this family language, this intimacy, this close relationship. And it seems like what Paul has done in verse 18 is that he has kind of uh, paraphrased 2 Samuel 7.14. And if that's the case, that's an interesting passage for him to be working from. That passage focuses on God's covenant with David to ultimately uh, bring in the Messiah who will sit on David's throne for all eternity. But what Paul explains, not here, but in other parts of his thinking, Paul explains that in Messiah, believers are part of that covenant family. By entering into the Messiah, what's true of him 
is true of believers, is true of us. And so he's God's son, and we now in him are God's sons and daughters. And that seems to be what Paul's thinking is here in verse 18. And so Paul has emphasized here all this identity language for the Corinthians and for us about who we are. We're the temple of the living God. Uh, God dwells among us. We are his people. Uh, We are his sons and daughters. And therefore, there's a response necessary for that. Keep in mind that all of this is part of Paul's appeal to the Corinthians not to be mismatched or misyoked with unbelievers, to be separate, to be different, to be distinct, that is, to be holy. And so Paul now, as we shift into chapter 7, Paul draws the conclusion from everything he just said, based on these promises, based on what these Old Testament texts say, how do we respond? Well, look at chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, Having these promises, that is, these Old Testament promises that were just quoted or alluded to, having those promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the appropriate response. Based on who we are, based on our identity, the required response is, so let's live as the people of God. Let's live who we are. And that means let's live in cleanness and holiness in the fear of God. That's the appropriate response. What does he mean when he says perfecting holiness? The basic idea of the word holy or holiness is to be distinct or different or separate. Like, Because we are the people of God in Christ, we need to be different. We need to be distinct in the way we live. Yes, you're going to still have to interact with and rub shoulders with the uh, unbelievers there in Corinth, and we're going to have to do that wherever we live, but our way of life and our values and our ambitions and the shape of our life is going to be different, distinct, holy. That's the idea of holiness is we're going to be different. We're going to be like Jesus in the midst of the world. And when he says perfecting, he means completing. Like that that should be our aim as we we arrive at mature holiness. We we aim for complete holiness. Now, between uh, now and the time we die, we're probably never going to get to complete holiness, right? But that's our aim. That's our ambition. And someday God will complete it completely for us. We aim in that direction. Uh, We exist for his purposes, and that means we must live the way he's called us to live. And notice what the kind of the motivation for that is here in verse 1 of chapter 7. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the motivation for our holiness. We're aware of God's holiness. We're aware that the infinite, almighty, all-holy God dwells among us as his people. He walks among us and we see the beauty of his holiness and we want to imitate that. And so we live with this deep sense of reverence, this deep sense of awe and honor. We're mindful that his presence is both good and beautiful, but also dangerous, right? Like you don't trifle with the all holy God. And so we we, by view of great awe and respect for him, 
we seek to be holy. And so now, having made that appeal to them, Paul returns back to his direct appeal to open their hearts to him. And so he says in verse 2, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. This is kind of what Paul has argued from the end of chapter 2 all the way up till this point, showing how we've acted with complete integrity among you. We haven't taken advantage of you. We haven't asked for your money. We've, we've been uh, completely self-giving and self-lowering among you. We've corrupted no one. We're not acting in any corrupt sort of way. We've taken advantage of no one. And so Paul has explained all that and argued that over the, the last handful of chapters culminating in this direct appeal. He says this in verse 3, I don't speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you're in our hearts to die together and live together. Like, like I, I'm not appealing to you out of condemnation for him. I'm appealing to you out of love for you. You're in our hearts. Like we, we care deeply for you. We've given ourselves to you. You matter deeply to us. And that's not just words. It's shaped the way we've acted to die together or to live together. This is how committed and how devoted Paul is to them and how he wants them to respond in kind. And Paul ends this appeal in verse 4 by saying he has great confidence in them. He actually really believes in them and believes they're going to get this right. And so he says, my confidence in you is great. My boasting, my, that word boasting is not just proud boasting, it's celebrating even. My boasting, my my proud confidence, my celebrating in your behalf is great. Like I've got complete confidence in you. I celebrate you. I believe in you. And so he says, so I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. And what Paul seems to be getting at is that in the midst of all the difficulty and all the struggle that he's and his team have endured in ministry in general, but specifically in his ministry, even with them, that I actually am overflowing with joy because I, I know that God's at work among you and my confidence in you is great. And I my appeal, I believe, will be heard, and I know we can move forward together. And so I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. And so here in this section of 2 Corinthians, we get really two powerful appeals that really go together in Paul's mind for the situation in Corinth. One powerful appeal is reconciliation to Paul, opening his heart. And I just love the honesty and the vulnerability that Paul demonstrates. His heart is open. He's giving himself to them. He's laid down his life to him, for them, and he appeals for them to respond in kind. Vulnerability tends to beget vulnerability. And Paul's modeling that here. He's demonstrating that. And he's appealing to them, that great appeal there. And then the other great appeal is for them to purify themselves completely, to see themselves as the people of God there in Corinth. And uh, what the temple of Jupiter is, or the temple of Asclepius is, or whatever the temple is there in Corinth, like those are pagan idolatrous temples. And you are a separate temple, a different kind of temple. You're the temple of the living God in Christ. And he walks among you. And so purify yourself. 
uh, and follow his ways. And so we get these two great appeals here, both of which are appeals to us as well, to be really the wholehearted people of God in the place where we live. And so may that be true of you and me as we live in the place where we live. May we separate ourselves, uh, not necessarily by physical distance, but by moral distance, by holiness distance, and being the people of God right where we live wholeheartedly, fully. May our identity be formed around Christ and his values and his way so that we're different, distinct, holy in the place where we live. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So thanks a ton for all of you who make this ministry possible. If you want to join the team, you can uh, swing over to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the Give uh, tab at the top. It'll take you to a page where you can set up a one-time or a monthly recurring donation. Just put in the amount. Click the little box that says Make This Monthly. All monthly donors get access to the Study Hub. So thanks a ton in advance for your support. May God bless you for it.